I am Anthony Scaramucci, and you may know me from my career on Wall Street or my 11 days in the White House. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I'll tell you, if you read books, you can. I love to read, and my new podcast, Open Book, is about just that. Each book is this curated source of knowledge, which we can buy for $10 and digest in 10 hours. Together with some of the brightest minds and authors out there, I'll turn the pages on everything from history and psychology to finance and tech. You can find Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey, it's Alex, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. You might have noticed Joe is not reading the intro today. He's traveling overseas, and he'll be back next week. It turns out the guy actually works. <laughs> Who knew? This week, though, we're really fortunate to welcome back our good friend, Trig V. Olson, who's been on the last couple shows, but a lot more is happening in Ukraine, and we wanted to get the latest to you and, and talk more about kind of what the implications are for the, the, the global war on democracy. Trig V, welcome back. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here. Uh, I don't know how I'll fill trippy shoes, but I'll try my best. Well, the, the Midwestern accent quotient on this show today is going to be infinity. So <laughs> listeners have that to look forward to. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people on, on my former side, the Republican side, who think it's pretty funny. I'm trying to fill trippy shoes, but I'm happy to do it. <laughs> well, look, I, I mean, and, and you, Joe, and I have had a couple of conversations this week already about kind of how we're starting to connect the dots on what we're kind of dubbing this global war on democracy. You know, we've all been kind of shaking our heads and saying, why isn't anybody else saying what we're saying? And I wanted to just get your take, thought that was a good place to start today. Well, I'll tell you, you know, part of this, Alex, I think is people like you and I and Joe have known that this battle globally between autocracy and democracy has been going on in lots of fronts around the globe. It was a much more of a soft power battle. It certainly wasn't what we're seeing in Ukraine, but it's the same fight, right? Uh, and it's been going on globally. And those of us who've been working with those fighting for democracy, and you know, you and I have done, and Joe have done this with Ukrainians, amongst many others, they will tell you this, this fight has been happening a lot. I was thinking last night, you know, some of us in 2015 were trying to say, hey, it's come to our shores. In truth, I was also thinking it's been on our shores for a while, even before that. It's been there. Yeah. Yeah. And it just became more apparent. And what we're seeing now is, you know, I think we saw this at the State of the Union. President Biden said, you know, this is a battle, global battle between autocracy and democracy. You saw a lot. Democrats and Republicans standing up and, and cheering that line. I think this events in Ukraine have really united across our own political divides, not completely, clearly, because there are people still apologizing to, you know, and taking Putin's side. And and globally, in the idea that you have, you know, Switzerland, for God's sakes, um, in coming along to impose the sanctions. Yeah, when you've lost the Swiss. Right. Or Luxembourg. Right. You know, I mean, I don't know what the Luxembourg is sending, you know, 50, 50 shotgun shells and, and probably a lot of good food, but it doesn't matter. Right. They're all contributing. 
and you see Germany doing what they're doing, Sweden. Um, yeah, it's it's unifying. And some of that is Zelensky. Some of that is the courage of the Ukrainian people. Some of it is outrage. Um, and we also need to always keep in mind, there's a lot of brave Russians who are standing up too. I don't know if you saw the video that's circulating on social media, the Babushka, a 90-year-old woman who has lived through Stalingrad or Leningrad, one of them. You know, and the police who had to come and arrest her, you could tell they were embarrassed. That's that's yeah. how we win this. We win this one person at a time by destroying their vertical um, globally and domestically. Well, and I, I want to get back to some of that video and information stuff later. But you did mention Joe Biden's State of the Union. Obviously, that was Tuesday night. And I think the first 10, 12 minutes or so were really direct about Ukraine. I mean, mm -hmm. he he was really clear. He was really direct. I mean, right away, he basically said Putin has badly miscalculated. I think he he mentioned what, what we talked about last week, that Putin thought he could just roll over, count on a fractured West. That clearly didn't happen. But the line I thought was most interesting from the State of the Union, and I think this got very good bipartisan support, was in the battle between democracy and autocracy, democracies are rising to the moment, and the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security. And if if the president had said that line four or five years ago, I think we all would have said, what? That's not where America's place in the world is under Trump. But it really, really stark contrast. Wanted, wanted your take there. Yeah, so I think you're right. I, I thought the first 12 minutes of the speech probably will go down in history um, in terms of State of the Unions as, as iconic in many ways because of the unity. And there are other examples of that, you know, um, certainly when the Berlin Wall was coming down, Kennedy, you know, Roosevelt after, after Pearl Harbor. I think what we're seeing, and this this is what's pretty amazing, is one, the Biden administration has led not by telling allies and the others what they have to do, but by encouraging them to do what's right. And in doing so, um, is getting far more support and far more benefit. The Ukrainians are getting far more uh, and the, the team democracy is getting far more from them than we would have if we'd have been demanding it by encouraging, you know, Germany upping what they're going to contribute. I think what we're seeing, and you hit on this, you know, what is what is team democracy all about? It's it's really about peace, uh, security, and prosperity, um, and that's what Ukrainians were striving for with their drive for democracy, and they were starting to achieve it. It's why the European Union, as much as NATO, was what they desired to become. They want to, and you hear Ukrainians say that, we want to be European. So what does it mean to be European? It boils down to security and prosperity. And that's what Ukrainians were striving to have. And democracy is the underpinning of that. That is a threat to, to autocrats like Putin and Lukashenko. And, you know, Lukashenko is kind of the forgotten man in all of this. I mean, Belarus has joined with with Putin in, in attacking Ukraine, their neighbors. But it was a colossal miscalculation. Um, that's why you're seeing all these Russian troops surrender, because there's a lot of people in Russia who would just like to be prosperous and European too. Well, the, the third thing I'd probably add to that is, uh, and you mentioned democracy is the underpinning, but self-determination is being such a huge part. And, and you and I and Joe have have all worked there in, in, in a lot of places in Eastern Europe. And, and the concept, there was always this tug 
right between the West and between Russia. And th there was always kind of a group of people that needed convincing about what the contrast really was, I think partially because of misinformation, partially because of just how things have always, quote unquote, always been in a lot of these people's lifetimes. Putin is doing a really good job of showing what that contrast is now. I think it's kind of a, a ripple effect of, of of the invasion. But you look at, I mean, going back to months and months ago when, when you were on, we talked about Orban in, yeah. in Hungary and, and the Fox News obsession with Hungary and people people accused us of being alarmist. Well, it, look at what's right. happening now, right? I, I also think it's interesting with Orban, though, because, um, you know, he he has certainly changed his rhetoric and what he's saying. And remember, Orban, Orban came up as a real anti-Soviet, anti-Russia guy. Um, and he understands that if you know you go to Budapest, I, I don't know if you've ever been to Budapest, but you go to Hungary and you hear about 56 even to this day. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it was it's a seminal moment in Ukrainian in Hungarian history, what the Russians did. And so he seems to be moving. One of the things that I saw today is that Orban has has said, and it seems like some in Europe have even suggested that perhaps Orban uh, and Hungary might be a good place instead of Minsk, which is an active party, to serve as kind of a mediating role. And you know, before we would criticize that, and Viktor Orban, we can have fights about his illiberalism after the fact, but he's saying the right things in this case. He's not, you know, he's not on the Russian side by far. You know, if he can play that role, we should think about letting him do that. And then we can have the fight with him and his illiberalism after the fact. Because right now, you know, it's it's what I call the Stalin rule and the seven rules for dealing with autocrats. Right now, you stand with anybody that's that's on your side and you so that you can have the disagreements about the other stuff after the fact. That doesn't excuse Viktor Orban and what he's been doing, but he's he's on the right side now in the bigger battle. I mean, I think our listeners can appreciate the idea of, of putting differences aside to fight the bigger battle. I mean, the fact you and I are talking right now on that trippy <laughs> show is, is a, I know we were talking about this pre-show, but we we're both kind of laughing about it. It's, right. it's pretty clear what we have to do. Yeah, totally. And, and the truth is, you know, this is the thing, right, with us. You can, you can, we can have, we may have our disagreements about policy issues, right? And we might pound on each other pretty good in the game we know, but there is a, there is the American side of it. And don't, don't start threatening our democracy because mm -hmm. there is no question that we stand together. Um, and that, that, you know, we have to focus on the big battle. You have to win each battle at a time. And this is going to come back, though, domestically, right, depending on how, the outcome in Ukraine. If Vladimir Putin stays around, which he may, I, I, I'm not going to predict one way or the other what's going to happen to Putin. I think he's got problems at home. Um, but I also know that having seen it firsthand, you know, he's going to he's going to battle to maintain that control brutally at home, too. But we should not be under false illusions that, you know, depending on what happens in Ukraine, that the stakes in our own elections and the level of meddling and efforts by team autocracy, um, we, will, we will shift to being a major front in this battle. 
Uh, I think we're already there. I mean, it's being waged at the state and local elections commission elections. We're talking yeah. about races with a couple hundred votes to decide who gets to watch, who's counting. And we all know that the Stalin line that Trump's so fond of using, the, it matters who counts the votes. I mean, it, it, you're right. This front is here and it's not going away. I do want to no, get- No, it's going to get amplified. It's going to get amplified. They're, they're, they're going to be pushing their forces. Um, what oh, yeah. we have to do for the time being is we need to be we need to be focused domestically on the domestic front with pushing. You know, I talk about her occasionally when I'm on here. My 86 year old mother calling me up and she had been all in on Trump and she's like, what the hell is he talking about? Genius. Putin's a genius. Is he nuts? And I'm like, that's what you're standing with. Right. You need to you need to be on the other side. And so, you know, as the Republicans who are doing the right thing right now, we can have our fights with them and and what they've done later. But with we have we have to a degree our foot on the throats of a lot of the the Trump on Trump and the people that are standing with team autocracy. And we need to press. Um, We need to take the fight to them and we need to ask the question. You know, every Republican should be asked, who's a greater threat to the United States, Joe Biden or or Donald uh, or Vladimir Putin? And you know what? They can't answer that question the way the Republican Party is right now. That's the kind of thing we have to press. No, I mean, and that's going to be that's going to be one of our huge tasks, both at the Lincoln Project and as kind of part of this larger pro-democracy coalition. Trick, I wanted to ask you, you know, there have been quite a few developments this week in the, in the actual fighting, and mm-hmm. I wanted to just touch on a number of them. Number one, we're recording this on a Thursday. Um, Macron just had a, a conversation with Putin, and he came away with that, basically warning everyone that things are going to get a lot worse. And it's pretty clear that Putin wants to seize all of Ukraine. I mean, that's still his end goal, right? I think so. I mean, it sure seems that way. Um, but there's a difference between seizing Ukraine and 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 militarily occupying it and and seizing peace and controlling it. And I, you know, you know this from having been in Ukraine. I know this. The whole world has seen this. The Ukrainians are not going to accept that. Um, and I, I think you know they can say you know. Victor is now your president and he's in charge. Ukrainians aren't going to accept that. They're they're right. going to right. So it it you know it's a Potomkin village it means nothing. Hence the term. The other thing that came out today and and obviously this is just completely unchallenged because it's coming from Putin himself, but he he is saying back home, quote, the special military operation in Ukraine is going according to plan in strict accordance with the schedule which sounds a lot like what you'd hear on RT and probably parroted on some of our least favorite Fox people, but pretty clearly not, right? It's sort of the um, January 6th was legitimate political discourse on a, on a macro scale. I mean, it's ridiculous. He knows that it's ridiculous. But what else can he say? He's stuck in the same way the people that called it legitimate political discourse were stuck. Except the thing is, is that, you know, um, those people should know better because they're living in a democracy. Putin's an autocrat trying to maintain power at any consequence. And it's what's so egregious about the statement here 
just as it's kind of egregious for him to say it. Um, I think I, you know, one of the things, you know, everybody, every, the, you have all the people who are like, we got to seize the yachts, sell the yachts. And I, I agree with that. We should, we should be putting maximum pressure on the oligarchs. Um, I also think it's important at the same time though, when the oligarchs make statements, call into question that we should applaud that. Right. Um, sure. Because they're one of our best hopes for, for flipping this. So it's, you know, basic diplomacy is is carrots and sticks, and um, we should always keep that in mind that we should call out what's wrong, but we should offer redemption when people do the right thing. And, um, you know, there are going to be irredeemables. Putin has his irredeemables, people who are committing war crimes. But we also should think, you know, we need – we need anyone and everyone who can help in the battle. And there are going to be right. some people who did bad things um, but are now changing sides, and we should be good with that. We should treat them the way the Ukrainians are treating those troops. Feed them. Be nice to them. Well, we've been talking about it. Mean, we've been having a lot of fun with it on Twitter. Uh, Rick, our friend Rick Wilson, has been calling it the Wilson Doctrine about every time a yacht gets seized. But it it does. There is kind of a a larger consequence more than just like a six hundred million dollar mega yacht being seized, which the Germans just did. There there's something that you said back when we were talking about your seven rules for dealing with autocrats and and getting into the idea that one of the key ways to hold on to power is proximity to dear leader, mm-hmm. and the idea that right now the most powerful people in Russia are the ones that besides Putin, obviously, are these oligarchs and the people that are talking to him on a daily basis. And, and, and right now, at least publicly, very few of them are breaking ranks. The more and more influence that the international community can put on them by taking a yacht, freezing some bank accounts, you see all the news about people with, with holdings in the UK, a, a, a united international response to freezing them out certainly is one way to send a very clear message to those in proximity to dear leader on this. Yeah. And what's important in these things, and this is the kind of thing, and we'll talk about this in a second, but you know, all the social media, all the talking heads, you know, we have to realize that the important conversations aren't all of those. And we probably don't have windows into the conversations that are happening amongst the oligarchs themselves about what they are doing. And we don't want to spook them from having that. One of the problems in a world where information and nothing can be a secret is it makes it, and instantaneously the world can know, is that it makes it really hard for those kinds of conversations to occur. I'm sure they are. You have to think that at a minimum, they're all calling and like, okay, this sucks. Like, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Um, We have to we have to recognize that that's happening. We have to recognize that that those in, in our own system who are who are for who have positions of leadership, where in some cases there may be Hobson's choices. Right? It's easy to say I want a no-fly zone, but if you say that, what you have to understand is the people who have that Hobson's choice, right, are are weighing the risk between. Okay, we've got to do something to help the people in Ukraine. And oh, by the way, if we enforce a no-fly zone, we run the risk of nuclear Armageddon, right? So there's that balancing act that's going on on all these levels, and we have to right. 
people need to be cognizant of that because most people, I think I said this the last time I was on your show, most people go their entire lives without having to make Hobson's choices or being confronted with Hobson's choices where there is no good answer and massive amounts of lives are at stake either way. You know, this is actually a perfect opportunity for a reader question. We did get one person asking last week, I believe it was Jeff in Florida, asking, we mentioned Hobson's choices a couple times. What is a Hobson's choice, Trig V, and how does it apply in this scenario? Right. So, Jeff, I want to thank you for the question. That's awesome that you asked. Uh, a Hobson's choice is one where any solution that you or action or choice that you make ultimately comes with bad outcomes that are known. And it becomes a question of which of the bad potential outcomes is the one that you choose, typically. So it's basically there's there's no real free choice involved because all the options are bad. There's free choice, but but any option that you pursue ultimately comes with negative consequences. Right? There is you know, and then it becomes a question of risk, reward, consequences. Um, it becomes a question of which has the least amount of bad in in the choice that you make. That's what a Hobson's choice is. So I, I want to get back to something we, we hinted at earlier, and, and this end, end up probably being the defining thing of the last week. There, I saw on this on Twitter, someone was calling it the first TikTok war the, the mm-hmm. Russian invasion of Ukraine, the first TikTok war. And we've seen, I mean, you mentioned one about the Russian grandmother. We saw the other ones, some of the troops surrendering, getting tea, all the different, I mean, you see all the different videos from Zelensky. This is really the first international conflict where there have been millions of people with internet armed phones who can get something up almost right away. Obviously there's some dangers of, of misinformation we'll talk about in a minute, but how how does this kind of, and not everyone's reported, but how does this idea that within seconds a video of anything from Ukraine can be on the internet, circulated around the world, how does that change both the perception and, and the ultimate outcome of this war? So I wish I, I would love to, and I'm going to have to have this conversation with Joe, right? Because like when it comes to internet and politics, domestically, you know, Joe's a giant. Um, but I will tell you, so. If, this is my take. When you think about technology at its basic level, what is it about, Alex? It's about self-empowerment, right? It's about empowering you as an individual, whether that's word processing. I don't even think people only people like me use word processing as a word, right? It doesn't really matter what it is, whether it's your phone or any of it. It's about self-empowerment. Now, we live in a in a world of good mostly good people and a few bad people and good people tend to use it to empower themselves in positive ways whether on an individual level i'm texting my kid to make sure she's she's all right to big things right um but there's going to be a few bad actors who use it i think it's a complete game changer i was another thing i was thinking about last night in the middle of the night i couldn't sleep um but is if you think about Zelensky and Putin, there's a generational battle that's going on here, right? Vladimir Putin's almost 70, Zelensky's 40. Zelensky is a child of the post-Cold World, post-Cold War era. Vladimir Putin is a child of the Cold War era. And I was thinking about this. Part of the reason Zelensky and Ukrainians are 
are winning the information war, I think, is that that difference. Zelensky understands the power of instantaneous communication and empowering individuals to use it for good, to get information out. Putin is terrified of that because things like peer-to-peer encryption, for example, is being utilized as television channels in Russia to get the truth out. It was used in Belarus in the same way that you know, a decade ago or two decades ago when I was working in Serbia, SMSs were used to spread the truth. Now it's even more robust. People are more empowered because they can send videos, they can send pictures. So that battle, it's a big one. And and I will say one of the things that I think, and this is for another day or time, but one of the things that tech companies have not done a good job of doing is is letting people understand. If you watch the movie The Great Hack, right, that's bad actors using that empowerment of technology for evil purposes. But simultaneously, there's all kinds of people in Ukraine right now who are using similar technologies for immense good. And, and, And the technology itself is neither good or bad. It's how humans use them. Um, and and well, it's a game changer. It's a complete game changer. I mean, you look at, I mean, obviously there's a propaganda war being fought on both sides. We've seen a lot this week about how uh, Putin pretty effectively brainwashed most of Russia into thinking that actually the Russians would be welcomed in because there's a bunch of drug addicts and Nazis in Ukraine. And as soon as the the Russian soldiers are being confronted in certain cases with that being not the case. They're either surrendering or realizing what's going on. Again, some of that's propaganda coming from both sides. But one one example was I think it was the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN read to the General Assembly text messages that a Russian soldier had sent to his mother, like in the middle of fighting. Mm-hmm. And it was something like there's a real war. We're bombing cities, even targeting civilians. We were told they would welcome us, and they're throwing themselves under our wheels, not allowing us to pass. They call us fascists. And it's just really, I mean, it's real-time dispatches from the front that obviously are are, the, that are being used. But it, it feels like there's a connectivity really from the whole world right now, or at least the parts with free access to information that we've never really had before. And I think that's probably doing something to kind of keep us united, keep us realizing that we still have to stand together against this. Because the instant we turn off and go worry about something else or bicker about something else in certain cases, Putin notches that as a, as a victory. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, hypothetically, if you had all the technology we have today, could something like the Holocaust and the rise of Germany and, and World War II have happened? In a, in a world like we have today, right? I don't know that it could have. But the other side of that, I'm also thinking to myself, in the world that we have today, let's say World War II had happened, you know, the first few days at Normandy didn't go so great. Can you imagine the tweets and the talking heads and, you know, suddenly, you know, Tucker Carlson's a military strategist. I knew that communist Roosevelt should have invaded through Spain and they, you know, blah, blah, blah. It makes it incredibly hard on both sides um, and for good or for bad. And so we have to keep that in mind. I mean, but I also, I would never underestimate the power of those kinds of text messages 
And and um, Putin's ability to keep a cap on this amongst Russians is going to be really hard. I will also say one of the things that's true about the post-Soviet space, particularly those that have not gone through the process of entering EU and NATO, they and Russia most of all, there has never been a honest reckoning in Russian society with what happened in World War II. And there is also something you have to understand. I was having a conversation once, maybe 20 years ago, with somebody who was a foreign minister of a country. So super senior, right? He had grown up in Soviet space. And this person and I were talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and what happened. And, you know, five minutes into the conversation, he said, you know, this Cuban Missile Crisis is very interesting to learn about. And I was like, what? And and yeah. and this is the thing. He was in a Soviet educational system. They didn't talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis. So things that I was taking as base knowledge, the Cuban Missile Crisis, I'm like, everyone knows the Cuban Missile Crisis, what happened. Here's somebody who was a foreign minister of a country who, who didn't know what it, what it was about. He had learned a totally different right. version of history. So we have to be cognizant of that. You think about the concept of a closed city which is really remarkable during the Soviet Union. But you look at like, you know, around Chernobyl, right? They were building the Duga radar, which for those of you who don't know, is literally a metallic structure. It's a radar receiver. It was, I think, a kilometer long and half a kilometer tall. I mean, one of the biggest structures you've ever seen in your life. And no one knew it existed. The ability for a lot of these, I mean, again, the Soviet, but the autocratic regimes to operate in, in complete secrecy on, on one level, it's okay, you got a, a radar, but there are a lot of Russians who don't know about a lot of the, like the Ukrainian famines that were engineered. There right. are a lot of reckonings coming here as, as information flows more freely. It's the, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the thing that Chernobyl if you look at the fall of the Soviet Union, the role Chernobyl played, you look at Afghanistan, it's a lot. I don't think Putin – I think if they're miscalculating. Certainly, there's smart people around Putin who do get this. What Putin himself may not get because of – you know, he's a child of the Coast, Cold, Cold War and a KGB guy. Mm -hmm. Thinks he can control those narratives. Um, probably thinks he's used um, technology well, but I think he's about to learn – an incredible lesson about the good of personal empowerment to for the truth to get out. Well, the differences between Afghanistan and Ukraine, I mean, just in terms of Russian involvement are so interesting. Obviously, the Afghanistan conflict was took a really long time. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible quagmire. You heard all the stories about the atrocities. But for a long time, at least within Russia, sentiment was kind of holding together because it was it was so bad initially that it was like so clear that they were on the side of good and these barbarians were there to be defeated. Obviously, the tide turned pretty quickly. But that same narrative, is, I think, is going to have a really t hard time holding up, especially with some of these instant dispatches of genuine civilian kindness happening on, in Ukraine. Right. And here's the thing. I mean – you know, people, even even people in autocratic verticals, um, they don't like having to pass off disinformation and sacrifice their own credibility. 
And I can assure you, the Russian guy who had to go on TV and admit that 500 and some casualties, um, he knows the truth, that it's a lot higher, and he knows what's really going on and probably is asking himself, even if he's not saying it to others, some real questions, is this worth it on a personal level, right? Um, there were people around Trump who had to play, you know, play the disinformation game who were asking that. Um, the more people that are having to do that and the, the more the emperor has no clothes, the more vulnerable the emperor becomes. And I do think, I mean, it's, it's odd. I don't, I, I have no unique insights into it, but when you look at these pictures, you know, Putin doesn't want to be within 30 feet of even his own generals. That's not a guy who's secure about something. You know, I don't know if he's worried they're going to jump on top of him or what, but it's weird. It's weird. Trig, that's just about all the time we have this week. But before we let you go, interesting developments domestically in a couple of key states. Obviously, the big one is Doug Ducey, as of today, says he's not running for Senate in Arizona. I think we'd probably both agree he was probably their top chance to take that seat. Yeah, Joe and I have covered this before with Sununu in New Hampshire not running and a few other kind of key recruits. But it's more and more clear that a lot of these rising stars on the Republican side, just don't want to be part of basically an obstructionist agenda. What you've worked in Arizona, obviously, you have some ties to one of the the, the more bipartisan people to come out of Arizona politics in a long time. What do you make of all this? You know, I if when you think about Doug Ducey, successful business guy, you know how he governed. There might be people who disagree with him in terms of you know. Our game, but I don't, uh, you know, in terms of the domestic politics, but I don't think anyone would say that Doug Ducey was an enemy of democracy. I think he's looking at the primary and I think he's saying, this isn't worth it. Like, I'm not going to kind of like the guy beg, I'm not going to be Baghdad Bob. I don't want to be that. Um, I don't want to be that guy on Russian television and have to say a bunch of stuff I don't believe. Uh, it's not worth it. And um, so there's part of that that's sad. Right. Because Doug Ducey would be the kind of candidate, even if you disagree with him, you wouldn't question his his bona fides as it relates to democracy. Um, but, yeah, it's happening all over the place. Um, this is the thing. I, Rick Wilson, who's our, our colleague at the Lincoln Project, who um, you know wrote a book, Everything Trump Touches Dies. Um, and that that's the case. And there's going to be more and more people who are going to say, I'm not I'm not touching it. I'll wait and see if this breaks. Of course, it would be ironic if Putin getting in bed proverbially with Trump uh, ends up ends ends up going down too. You know, like. Um, but that is a big deal. I think the other thing that's going on that people need to be aware of, and it's kind of the same dynamic. You know, in Wisconsin, you've had this crazy in parts of the Republican Party, and to appease them, they have they put a former Supreme Court justice Gableman in charge of investigating. And now he's going all in with, you know, uh, Sidney Powell type conspiracy theories that they're going to, they need to decertify the election. And it's put Robin Voss, the speaker of the parliament in a horrible spot because he appointed this guy to appease them. And now it's, it's dragged him into the middle of it. it. And that's what happens. You, you can't, you can't go halfway. Um, the best thing that any of these guys can do is is basically say, I'm done with it. Now, that comes with the political cost in the current Republican Party. 
But if enough of them do it, just as if enough Russian elites and people say we're done with this guy, you change it. Well, Trig, that is just about all the time we've got. Thanks for coming on this week. And thanks, everybody, for listening to that trippy show. We'll be back next week. Hopefully, we'll be able to get Joe back as well. I do want to give a quick union update. Over 3,000 people have joined in the last week. And many of you also took your first action. And I think we crashed the Fox News phone system, Trig, when we uh, demanded they stop airing the Russian (laughs) propaganda. Uh, Thanks to everyone who's making your voices heard. It is not going unnoticed. and, And we'll have plenty more for you to do. Don't forget, please subscribe to that trippy show and leave us a review on Apple or wherever you listen. And and please do share it with a friend. It it is continuing to help us grow. Uh, You can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question in the review on iTunes. And this week, if you do want to mention how much better this week's show was, and you don't have to give any reasons, uh, I promise we'll show Joe every single one of them. And as always, I promise we'll be sharper next week. See you next time. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and you may know me from my career on Wall Street or my 11 days in the White House. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I'll tell you, if you read books, you can. I love to read, and my new podcast, Open Book, is about just that. Each book is this curated source of knowledge, which we can buy for $10 and digest in 10 hours. Together with some of the brightest minds and authors out there, I'll turn the pages on everything from history and psychology to finance and tech. You can find Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.